speaking about podcasting when I was researching, you know, just basic, I mean, I do this very simply as, as, as you probably do too, as well. And, you know, just researching the, the very basics in equipment, microphone, headphones, that kind of thing. You know, you're on YouTube, like watching comparison videos, which one do you get? And you can literally, it can literally be endless if you don't finally make a decision and say, look, I'm just going to choose one <laughs> and start. You got to start somewhere. A little clip came from my interview with Eric Teplitz. We talked about basically experimenting with your life and creating kind of a mixtape of it, learning from all the things that you learned from the bumps and the bruises. We talked about him moving to Nashville on a whim. Basically, he had an interest to be there. Like, I have an interest to be in Florida. And this episode took a really long time to edit because there were some just just drops in the call and things like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, help. So there's a lot of a lot of peace that was lost from working on this in the back of my mind, just having it sit there and not working on it. So if there's anything to learn from this, it's just don't let things sit in the back of your head for that long. I've done that with so many things. It always steals way too much peace and it's never worth it. Just get it out there, darn it. You'll be okay. Anyway. It was a great episode. I'm very pleased to fit. I'm glad that it's finally out. Eric was super solid guest. The episode does end super abruptly, and that's because of the call dropping and all that other good stuff. So just know that, but I hope you enjoy the episode for what it is, and let's just jump right into it. <laughs> Welcome to Yield Today. I'm here with Eric Teplitz. He has done a lot of really amazing stuff with his life doing a blog, podcast, hiking, trying out for the Ironman, and finally, you know, finishing on his third try. Lots of awesome stuff. We're going to dive into all that with Eric today. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's kind of dive into just the overall beginning of your life foundation. Like, what do you think that foundation looked like? And what were some of the ways it was blessed and like, good for you? Well, I grew up in Northeast Philly, so I was something of a city kid, but I grew up just on the boundary of the suburbs. And it was a, you know, it was a really great environment in the sense that I could easily bike to or even walk to friends' houses and there were a lot of families and I grew up in a very loving and supportive and stable household. So I had a pretty good childhood, maybe actually a really good childhood. And then things got difficult for me as a teenager when um, it's interesting you ask about what was a blessing in terms of you know my foundation and certainly the stability and uh, loving nature of the household I grew up in were unquestionably blessings. But what's kind of interesting, I was just speaking with someone recently about this, is that as a teenager, a lot of things were really jarring to me. And I went through what I what I actually labeled a rude awakening. And because I had been so sheltered and, and kind of grown up in this very protective bubble, when reality kind of started poking holes in my kind of notion of how the world worked, it was very disillusioning. And I think everyone experiences that in some way and at some point in their life. But interestingly, I think that kids who may not have had the same advantages that I did in terms of that stability and, you know, like my parents, they're literally still together. <laughs> They've been married 54 years. But, you know, like a, some kids, they went through their parents divorcing when they were growing up and and had other maybe things that were not quite as um, stable as as the world I kind of you know lived in, and while that can certainly be even traumatic in a way, I felt like 
other kids may have been better prepared for for life and for being a teenager in a, in a sense because reality wasn't such a shock for them. They kind of already had some experience with it. When I say reality, of course, I mean sort of using that in a, the harsh sense of you know like the real world and 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 problems and and difficulties. So I think I had a little bit of a, maybe a naive sense of things. And uh, certainly I think I always was very idealistic and probably still am. It's tough because like, as we're growing up, we're always learning new stuff so quickly. And, you know, we think things are a certain way. And then, you know, you can have the ball dropped on your head a little bit like, oh, TV's not free or, (laughs) you know, something like that. Like you, you get that, that like little, like you said, a rude awakening. And I think a lot of it just comes down to what happens when we have those moments. You know, do we have somebody to talk to or or what do we do? Do we have like a book we can turn to or, you know, what is the response that happens? And for me personally, when I haven't really had a way to channel that productively, it tends to sort of keep funneling around and it's like, I don't know what to do with this. And it's just kind of like you said, it's just kind of like you're, you're moving around. You don't really know what's going on sort of. Yeah. For me, uh, this, my saving grace, I would say was music. And certainly, I mean, I always loved music from the time I was a little kid, but especially when I was a teenager, it became like a, um, like a lifeline really in the sense that Music for me was very therapeutic. Um, I was becoming a guitar player and eventually a songwriter. And but but taking in music, I found a lot of solace in music, where I felt like music was, you know, uh, through music I felt understood. I felt like music expressed all the things that I was feeling. Um, and different artists had had a way of you know expressing themselves and communicating that felt like it was just for me and, 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 and perfectly captured how I felt and, and, or just gave me a lift and made it easier to cope with whatever I was going through. And so music was something of like a salvation for me, especially I think at that time of my life. Beautiful. The escape that some of those things can provide, because that's a lot of what the authors and composers and whatever, that's what they're doing it for is for the escape and to share these emotions. And then a lot of times we can experience those same emotions. You know, it's a really beautiful thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think art in general, whatever the medium is and whatever form it takes has the ability to really do kind of wonders for your spirit. And it can be something as simple as an escape and, an, and a distraction and sort of a way to, you know, um, not have to face your difficulties or, or a reprieve from them. But I think even more than that, it can go deeper and it can help you process the things you're going through. It can help you make sense. And at the very, and in a very key way, feel understood and feel less alone. Other people have been through these things. And uh, it that alone, I think, is very reassuring. I completely agree. So how did you take music and how did that love continue to blossom and grow as you went throughout your teens and into young adulthood? Yeah, it, it really became kind of an all-consuming obsession. You know, I had been dying to learn guitar. I was uh, one of my early favorite bands was The Who. Watching Pete Townsend, uh, watching videos of him playing guitar as a kid, I was like, wow, like that is the coolest thing. And I would love to do that, you know? Um, And uh, I 
probably was like begging and clamoring for a guitar. And I remember when I was 13, a cousin of mine loaned me a guitar. It wasn't even his. I eventually had to return it, but it was a perfect starter guitar. It fit me really well. It was fairly small. It was a guild guitar. It was a high quality guitar, but it was um, manageable for me. And I, you know, begged my mom for lessons and found a guitar teacher and eventually got to the point where I would have to take two buses to my lessons and pay for them myself. But I did it very willingly. I was so eager to learn. This is, of course, before the internet. So I couldn't just go on YouTube. I also got a job working at the local record store, something that is um, almost an obsolete thing right now. <laughs> uh, but that was amazing too. I was in the store so often as a customer that the manager just kind of said, do you want to work here? <laughs> and, and I started working there when I was 14. And so, you know, it's funny enough. I mean, like all the money that I made at the record store, I pretty much went back to the record store because I would buy albums and cassettes and CDs and concert tickets and music books and posters and whatever. So it was pretty all-consuming. Yes, yeah, so you surrounded yourself yeah. with it. That, that's pretty interesting. You you made that multiple parts of your life were now funneling into that. You have work, you have like your hobby. You know, they all kind of went back to that. That's cool. I think that's something that we have in this world today is you can surround yourself with pretty much anything. I mean, there's podcasts on pretty much any topic. And so you can get really all consumed in pretty much anything. It's a very amazing time we're, we're living in right now. It truly is, man. And, you know, being the age that I am, I'm going to be 50 this year. You know, I, I'm not a digital native, so I know what life was like before this. And it's, I think that it's still challenging. It's just the challenges, challenges are different. Now, you, the amount of content that's available to us 24-7 at our fingertips, the issue is that it's, it's overwhelming. It's too much. It's, you don't even know where to begin. So it's not like it's scarce. You know, it was, it was more scarce when I was growing up. It wasn't as easy to access. Uh, you know, it's all relative, right? Because compared to previous generations, it certainly was. But it's um, nowadays, I think it's just information overload. And the challenge is how do you sift through it all and find what you want and what you what will help you and not be completely distracted and overwhelmed just by the sheer volume of content? <laughs> Well, it's absolutely insane. I mean, there's you could watch like basketball highlights from like five years ago or whatever, you know, and then all of a sudden you're like living in 2017 or whatever. And we're not in 2017 anymore. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that have happened since then, but it's very easy to trap yourself or kind of bring yourself back to that and go on this like vacation of sorts and not really come back. You know, you just kind of stay there. And I think that is kind of what's happening. People, they, I talked about this with somebody else. They, you know, they have their cognitive bias and then you have like the Google, you know, will recommend different things to them and the algorithm and stuff. And so they just kind of don't really get out. It's like, it's like the one story of the guy who fell asleep and woke up and the whole world had changed. You know, I can't remember if it was Legend of Sleepy Hollow or, or something like that. But like, you know, he fell asleep around the time of the revolution and woke up and the battle had been won and all this other stuff had happened while he was sleeping. So like stuff, stuff is still happening. And it's easy to, I don't know, I think it's good and bad. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it's incredible. And there are many wonders. I mean, just the fact that we're having this conversation right now is a function of the technology that's available to us very, very accessibly. And, you know, that it, it, that's an amazing thing. 
but yeah, there there are definitely downsides. And I know I've been sucked into the vortex of YouTube and you come out and you're like, what day is it? <laughs> because there is so much compelling content. And so it's a different challenge. It's funny, like I wonder about some of the great artistic figures uh, throughout history, right? How productive would they have been now if they had access to the technology that we use every day? In some ways, things would be infinitely easier. I think of like composers, musicians, you know, composers like Beethoven, you know, and uh, if he had the software at his fingertips that we have, for instance, would that make him more productive and prolific? Or would he be so overwhelmed and distracted that he wouldn't have accomplished nearly what he did in his lifetime? It's, I mean, it's an impossible to answer question, but these are the things that I think about. <laughs> it's fun stuff to think about. I mean, you were on another podcast and talked about how there's so many different things when it comes to starting right. a podcast, like Mike and all this other stuff. We talked about it earlier. I mean, it's easy to get so overwhelmed that we don't even make any progress whatsoever, you know, because of all the information that we're taking in without actually using any of it. So it happens all the time to people. Yeah. And there's the sort of analysis paralysis that we, that is uh, we can get trapped in speaking about podcasting when I was researching, you know, just basic, I mean, I do this very simply as, as you probably do as well. And, you know, just researching the, the very basics in equipment, microphone, headphones, that kind of thing. And you're on YouTube, like watching comparison videos, which one do you get? And you can literally, it can literally be endless if you don't finally make a decision and say, look, I'm just going to choose one <laughs> and start. You got to start somewhere. But yeah, that, the, the tendency for analysis paralysis, I think, is only exacerbated by just the sheer amount of content that's available to us to sift through. You know, there have been studies about human behavior and decision making where there's, I think, the optimal number of choices for people. And this is, I'm, I may be getting this wrong, but conceptually, it's like maybe three choices are optimal and ideal for people. And when you give them 12 choices or 20 or 50, they become so overwhelmed that they're paralyzed. They don't, they don't even know where to begin. They don't even know how to, you know, so it's, there's a point at which it is um, counterproductive to research and to analyze. There's a, there's an expression that I love, which is ready, fire, aim, as opposed to ready, aim, fire. And the idea is, you know, start somewhere actually like take the first step and then figure it out as you go and learn from your experience rather than try to completely get absolutely 100% prepared and ready before you take any action. You'll, you'll, you may never get there. I do like the ready fire aim thing a lot. I've heard about that before. That's, that's what we did with my first YouTube channel back in 2012 with some friends. We wanted to record our Smash Bros and Mario Party gameplay. And so we put a, you know, camera on top of some encyclopedias on a tripod and pointed that at our TV. We didn't be like, Oh, we have to have this and this and this. We're like, we have everything we need to get started. And that is the truth with everything. I mean, you have enough to get started. I mean, if you need to go to the library, if you need to borrow a computer. I mean, that is not glamorous, but there's a lot of big YouTubers that started with borrowing cameras until they could pay for their own. You know, you got to start somewhere because if you don't start now, eventually you're going to have to make that first video or that first podcast. And it's going to be like, <laughs> I should have done this forever ago, you know, kind of thing. So let's kind of go back to Eric in college and Eric in like young adult life with uh, the music and everything. From the little research I did, it sounded like you took a, a semester or you took some time to live near Nashville to like kind of pursue your music dream. Kind of bring us back. What was going on in your mind there? What you were excited about? 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, you know, I did very well as a kid in school. I felt like I was good at school. As far as life skills go, it's not a terrible one, but it does not translate to being good at life. It's being good at school. It doesn't even necessarily mean you're learning a whole lot. It could mean that, but not necessarily. School and playing the game of school is a skill like anything else. And um, I did really well in school. So it was very much expected and sort of understood that I would go to college. And at that point in my life, the only thing I really cared about, as I had mentioned earlier, is music. And I knew I was really driven and I really wanted to pursue music seriously. My parents basically said to me, well, here's what we can afford. We can afford to send you to a state school. I I grew up in Philly, Pennsylvania. So basically like any state school that I wanted to apply to and got accepted to, they they would foot the bill. And if I wanted to go elsewhere, that was fine, but it was up to me to then figure out how to finance it and pay the difference. And it was even back then. Nowadays, honestly, I can't even fathom the cost of college. It's 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 mind-blowing. Uh, it's utterly absurd and obscene, if you ask me. But even back then, so like I, I was I had a vague interest in going to NYU and specifically the Tisch School of the Arts, because I was into creativity and I I liked creative writing and I liked music and I thought New York might be an exciting place. Um, And I did, I think I didn't even bother completing the application because I saw what the cost was for attending. And maybe it didn't occur to me to apply for scholarships or maybe I didn't think I would get them or I don't know, but I just thought there's no, there's literally no way I can afford that. So I ended up going to Penn State And the entire thought process for me about college was really just like, well, if I go to Penn State, it means I can live away from home. And another popular choice among kids that I grew up with was they would go to Temple University in Philly. And certainly kids went to other schools besides those. But I would say the majority of kids ended up at either that I went to high school with went to Temple or Penn State. And to me, I thought, well, Temple means I would stay at home and commute. No, thanks. Penn State means I'd live away from home. Let's do it. And that was really just about as much thought as I put into it. So I I end up at Penn State and my first semester, I did very well. I made the dean's list and enjoyed living away from home. But I knew pretty immediately, like, this place is not for me. Sort of like the stereotypical ideal Penn Stater would be a, a huge football fan. I couldn't have cared less about football. Really, really into drinking with a passion. Couldn't have cared less for alcohol. Into fraternity life, which basically meant drinking in a group of people. If you were a business major or an engineer, then welcome to Penn State. Now, I am, of course, oversimplifying. And Penn State had literally close to, even back then, something like almost 200 majors to choose from. It's an incredible place with incredible resources. And you know, it's a big school. So there's lots of opportunities. But I just felt like I didn't belong. I didn't fit in. And it really didn't feel like my place. So I, I applied to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Berkeley College of Music was like, to me, it was like the Disneyland of colleges. Like I looked at the catalog and I'm flipping through and I'm like, this is incredible. Like this is like, you can major in songwriting. Like that's a major. And, and, you know, you could take a, there was a class called the music of John Lennon. Like that was a class you could take. I thought, sign me up. And I applied without really even caring or considering too much how I would afford it. I just applied for the sake of it. And uh, I didn't get in. I was rejected. And the reason for my rejection was lack of formal music education. 
So I had like a pristine academic record and I had done all this musical stuff on my own, but I didn't have the formal training. And that was the reason that I was, uh, you know, declined and I was you know, kind of crushed, uh, but there was no audition. There was no demo tape. It was all based on my application. And I guess I took some consolation in the fact that, you know, all of my musical heroes, if they bothered to go to college at all, and many of them didn't, if they did, they, they didn't finish, they dropped out. <laughs> you know? um, so I thought, okay not the end of the world. Very few people that I admired, you know, went to school for this, but I ended up staying in at, at Penn state uh, because it was like, literally I would go through a crisis. I think once a semester of like, that's it, I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> and then something different each time would keep me there. At one point I had a girlfriend. So I was like, all right, I'll stay. Cause I have a girlfriend and you know, it, it seemed to beat staying back home and waiting tables. So I went back and I just kept going back and eventually graduated almost like uh, unintentionally. And certainly I didn't expect to do so on time, but I, I, you, to your, to get back to your question. And I, I digressed a bit. What I did was I knew I was passionate about music and specifically I wanted to be a singer songwriter. And I would spend a lot of time while I was in college doing that, writing songs and then wandering around with my guitar and just playing them for people, whoever would listen. I did that a lot. And I got pretty good responses from people. People dug it. So I thought I need to be in a music environment. And somehow Nashville got on my radar at that point in time, sort of the three places to be if you were serious about music and you know where the, where the music business was situated were New York, Los Angeles, and Nashville. And I was very intimidated by New York. I don't remember what it was about Los Angeles because I ended up eventually moving there and I've lived there for a long time now. That initially didn't call to me. Nashville seemed like per perfect middle ground and medium, like it felt accessible. And I, I got a book that was called the something like the Songwriters and Musicians Guide to Nashville. And I read through it and it sounded amazing. It sounded like, wow, like I can just go there and there'll be endless opportunities to perform at open mic nights and writers nights and network with other songwriters. And, and, you know, the, there is, I mean, it's mostly, it was mostly known for country music, but there are, there are possibilities, you know, to get um, discovered or to, to make, you know, some kind of career headway. So I thought, as an experiment, because I, I wasn't done college yet. I was still a junior. And I thought, let me as an experiment live there for the summer in between my last two years of college and just see how I like it, see what it's like. And it was like a dual experiment. Number one, it was I would get to be on my own because college really you're not on your own. I mean, I was living away from home, but I didn't have to fend for myself. You know, I had my meals you know, paid for at the dining hall and I had, you know, the dorm and whatever. So I thought this will be a cool just experiment in really living on my own and also being immersed in a music centric place. So I did that. I found a, uh, contacted some schools in Nashville and found a grad student who was subletting his apartment for the summer. He had an extra bedroom. I lived there for the summer and explored. I worked, I waited tables during the day and I explored the scene. And loved it and met some incredible friends, mus musician friends that I have had very lasting friendships with and, and thought, wow, this is incredible. But I have one year left of college. By the end of the summer, I was like, I, I have one year left of college. I, I have to finish it. Like, I just have to see it through. Be sort of begrudgingly went back, did my last year of school. And then when, after I had graduated shortly thereafter, I ended up moving back to Nashville. So that was a long answer to <laughs> your question. 
it was an experiment, you know, during a summer in between college semesters. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's really vital. I mean, something I try doing every semester of college is have one thing that I try to do. You know, maybe this one semester I only played video games Friday and Saturday, and that was a big success. You know, little stuff like that. And then there's another semester where I didn't play any video games at all, and that was a big oof because I didn't have this way I needed to to release you know, like some of my stuff, I, I'm a really creative, imaginative person. If so it helps if I spend time in imaginative, creative worlds, you know, and it was really helpful for me. But, you know, giving yourself that little experiment, it reminds yourself that you're a scientist in your own lab, you get to try out different stuff. And you're ultimately the creator of, of your life, your circumstances. I mean, where you are right now, is benefit very much by all those steps of uncomfortability that you took back then. No question about it, Dallin. No question. I I think that that sense of curiosity and exploration and willingness to experiment is an essential trait in living a meaningful and fulfilling life. That willingness to try things and explore and experiment and see for yourself, not just take other people's word for things, but have an experience for yourself and find out, does this work for me or not? And you gave the illustration of the video game immersion more or less, you know, or at least like constant in your life one semester versus not. And then you've, you've found, oh, okay. And I think that's really cool because you can do experiments of, um, uh, addition or subtraction, right? Like you can add something new to your life and try it out. You can also take something out. I did an experiment once. <laughs> I decided I was going to try to go an entire month without eating sweets. And I w- it took me a long time, by the way, to even be willing to do that because I feared, I was like, am I actually like addicted to sugar? I can't seem to stop eating it. Like, is this, um, what would happen if I went a month without it? Like, would I be bouncing off the walls? Would I go crazy? Like, would I, how, how dependent am I on this stuff? Um, and I, just purely like out of an experimental mindset, I thought, well, let me, let me see. And I did this experiment. There's a post on my blog from years ago called a month without sweets in parentheses, a report from the trenches. So I did it and I was, the, the results were kind of amazing. First of all, it was, it ended up being a lot easier than I thought it would be. And I reported uh, about what the experience was like on my blog. And it, and the, the benefits were so kind of hard to argue with that I was like, well, let me keep going with this and, and I'll make it two months and then three. And after that, I was like six months <laughs> without sweets, right? And then, and I did that and I'm like, I'm going to double down. Like, let's do a year. Why not? You know? And I did, I did. And it ended up, I ended up going about 17 months, I think in total before I was like, all right, I've had enough. Now I'm ready for ice cream. <laughs> but, th- and then I did another post uh, at the year mark about what I learned from a year going a year without sweets. So it's just that kind of, I think, willingness to explore and experience new things. And again, it can be by addition or subtraction and seeing how it goes and, and then recalibrating afterwards and, you know, adjusting accordingly and, and learning, always learning. Hey, what's up? This is Dallin. I really appreciate you listening to this podcast episode. It is the podcast listeners that keep this podcast going. Do me a quick favor and send this episode over to somebody that has been on your mind so far. We're all about designing little wins in our day and building up the people around us. So if there's somebody that has come to your mind, and I bet there has been at least one, 
send them this episode and maybe a little message of how it's helped you. And uh, yeah, let me know how it goes. Thank you so much. And let's just get back to the episode. I think taking different notes like is huge. Like when you're in a science experiment, those are some of my favorite times, weirdly enough. And some of those science classes, it's like, how is this reacting when you pour this whatever in it? And you get to like, well, it's kind of like it's turning yellow and it's kind of like a yellowish green color. I mean, it's the kind of the same thing in your life you get to see like, what's it like if I'm rooming with these people as opposed to these people, or I'm walking this far to class, uh, this far, or I'm taking a scooter. I mean, you can really do all that observation on your life and it can do wonders for like how you see things looking ahead. You can have a lot more confidence that things will go really well because you've done all that prep work beforehand. And that is crazy that you are stuck with uh, avoiding sweets for so long. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, it's my life has been such an un, I mean the truth is is that all of our lives are unpredictable and it's an illusion to think you can plan everything out and have a and have everything go accordingly. It's uh if if COVID has taught us nothing else, I mean, it's reminded us in a big way of how completely unpredictable and out of control things are or out of our control, I should say. And the thing that the only thing that really is within our control is the attitude that we adopt toward toward life, the actions that we choose to take, the way we choose to conduct ourselves. Um, and that might seem like a, a little thing in the scheme of things compared to all the things that are not in our control, but it's huge, actually. It's huge. Have you read Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Man's Search for Meaning. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that book is pretty amazing. Yeah, and that's kind of what it... Yeah, and that is really the essence of the the message of that book. And of course, it's in the extreme context of surviving the death camps in, in Nazi Germany during the Holocaust was his experience that he was writing about. And that was the, what he concluded was, um, you know, that, that the one thing that he had agency over was his attitude, regardless of the circumstances he found himself in. And it's, I mean, that's a, it's extremely powerful. Yeah, I really liked how he talked about how there's the gap between stimulus and response. Yes. And there is man's ability to do really anything. He can choose whatever from there. I think it's really easy to think we have to do certain things because of how we've been in the past. But truly, we don't have to be held down by any strings like that. Yeah, and that that gap, by the way, might only be a millisecond between stimulus and response, depending on what the stimulus is, <laughs> if it's like a car accident or I don't know what. Um, but no, it's true. It's like the, it's in that that gap that your agency lies. And you're right. I mean, we're, we're conditioned to think we have to react or respond in certain ways, but that is – we have, where there is – and it can be hard to – be have the presence of mind to make a conscious decision, especially in a, in a very condensed amount of time. But it is possible, and I've experienced it. I'm, and I'm certainly by no means flawless at it. I, I have reactivity just like anyone else. But I've noticed that whenever I'm able to be present and make a decision that's not simply a reaction, but a, a measured response, it, it's it, it serves me so beautifully. You know, like even just a decision, like let's say you get stuck in traffic and you're on your way to something and you're going to be late. You don't have to be upset. I mean, naturally, it's an understandable reaction. But 
you can choose to adopt a playful attitude about it and say, huh, all right. You know what? Like you can almost like say, I'm going to enjoy this and turn on some good music, call a friend, whatever you choose to do to, to make that situation more pleasant or, you know, and to just relinquish to say, well, this is out of my control. I, there's nothing I can do about it. So I might as well make something positive out of it. Out of it. And that's, a, that's maybe a simple example, but it's a profound shift, you know, in your, and it gives you, it gives you a much different experience. Yeah, I completely agree. I was actually thinking about a big bike accident I had just a couple months before I came back from uh, my two-year mission trip for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, you know, I had the very clear thought when I was laying there in the hospital bed, you know, we were supposed to go and serve people and, you know, teach and everything like that. And here we are, you know, this unexpected crash happened. We were on this uneven road and I fell off and then did this number on the road, you know, my hands and, you know, I have this scar. You probably can't really (laughs) see it with the lighting, but it's pretty, it was pretty gnarly, but I had this thought, like I could be the most annoying patient this hospital has ever seen or, I could just be pleasant and just make the absolute most of it. And I chose the second, you know, I chose to like pray with one of the doctors whose husband recently was diagnosed with cancer. Like there's still, people are suffering. People have struggles like, and it helps a lot to just suffer with people instead of just like, you know, just tort. Yeah. Just be with them. Or to be there, you know, be present for them while they're suffering and, and, like you know, suffer with them is an interesting way to choice of words. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I think I know what you mean, which is to empathize and to be supportive and to, you know, be um, be there for them while they're suffering. And it's incredibly meaningful. And by the way, when you're a hospital patient, as you may have experienced, you know, if you decide to take on the attitude you did, you're actually going to get much better result. You know, the people who are there to help you are going to be much more likely to want to help you if you're a you know, if you're a pleasant person, like you're going to get the best out of them by, by choosing to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I take from my Latin roots a little bit from high school, the word uh, for passion comes from the word pati or patioris or passus um, and it basically is saying a, a suffer. So when I think of like compassion, I think of suffer with, but but it Suffering is kind with, of yeah. an interesting thing, and a lot of people don't think about it that way because it does put you in a very vulnerable state, and so you do have to kind of be careful with that. Because even like doctor people, I mean, they're helping you out, but they can't be there with you all the time. There's all kinds of other people they need to help out with certain things. So a lot of it is just you, you know, internally. Like, what are what are you gonna choose? You can make a big deal about a paper cut, and a lot of people do. But then there's other people that are literally, you know, you're on the Professor of Perseverance podcast and I had James Perdue on a while ago. Like he had a, you know, an injury that literally paralyzed him and he's still a really happy guy. Yeah. What an example. So kind of let's go back a little bit to, uh, well, I want to talk about this Appalachian, is that how you say Appalachian trail? Like how did that kind of come about. I assume this is another experiment of yours. You're like, I need some yeah. more content, you know, you know, kind of thing. You're just like, I want to try it out. Kind of what, what was the, like, I guess, desired Impetus outcome. For that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, content, no. I mean, this was I did that in 2002, and I wasn't really um, wasn't after content per se. Uh, you know, it, it it came about because hiking had hiking had been a love of mine for quite some time, and I had always gotten a lot of nourishment from just day hiking, just being out in nature and going on long walks. And I found that incredibly restorative. And if I felt like, in fact, I have a blog post that I wrote years later called The Most Effective Antidepressant, and it's all about hiking. So I, I found it beneficial in just so many ways that it became a kind of a mainstay of my life, whatever else I happened to be doing and still is. But what was new, what uh, an exploration that was much newer to me was backpacking. So I had gone on day hikes, but I told you earlier, I grew up in the city and I was very much a city kid and I was never, you know, I never did any sort of like scout, boy scouts or cub scouts or eagle scout or anything like that. And then just, uh, you know, my, I didn't have that. My, my, my world was not that. And my parents were not outdoors enthusiasts by any stretch. My dad a little bit, he would like to go for walks in the woods, but you know, so I, I literally had never spent a night outdoors until I was 27 years old. And, uh, Without going too deep into it, basically, I, I was doing hiking with a group called the Appalachian Mountain Club when I was living in Philly. This was after my Nashville adventure. I was back in the Philly area. And I'd always done hikes by myself or maybe with a friend, but I joined this club and started doing group hikes. And what, it was very cool because I got to go like discover places I'd never been and met people who shared the interest in hiking. And one guy that I met on a number of hikes, he was leading a backpacking trip and he said, he invited me to, to come. And I said, it sounds fantastic, but here's the thing. Uh, I've never done this. I don't have any gear. I don't know how to do anything. I don't know how to set up a tent. I don't have a tent. Uh, I've never camped. I've never even gone car camping. And he's like, no problem at all. And he basically like met all of my objections and he's like, okay, I can loan you this. And you know, don't worry about that. And I'll help you with this. And, you know, and I was like, okay. So I, I went and it was a weekend trip. I want to say maybe it was like three days and two nights out in a state park in Northern Pennsylvania. What's really interesting is if it had been crappy weather that weekend, I may never have, it might've been a one and done experience. I don't know. I don't know how I would have felt about it, but it was a beautiful weekend. And I fell in love with the whole thing. I thought, this is amazing. I love this. It was so liberating to have everything you need with you and carry, you're carrying it on your back. And yeah, it's hard work, but there was something extremely appealing about spending a more prolonged time instead of just an afternoon, but a weekend out in the woods. That exploration then led to, was like sort of a domino effect. And I kept going further with that. And, uh, Anyway, I, I moved to Los Angeles not too long after. I did a course with the Sierra Club called the Wilderness Travel Course, and I learned some more skills and got more confidence and kind of learned how to, you know, set up a tent and manage a backpack and use a cooking stove. And I learned all these things and a water filter and whatever else. And I read a book around that time, actually in the summer of 2001, called A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. And in that book, it's a brilliant and beautifully written book. And in it's the book is sort of a, a, a hybrid style of things, but it's primarily a memoir about his experience having left the US for a period of time. He lived abroad, I believe, in the UK, and then came back and wanted to rediscover his home country by hiking the Appalachian Trail, which is this romantic kind of uh, notion. Uh, the Appalachian Trail 
is at the time it was 2,168 miles and took you through 14 U.S. states from Georgia in the south all the way up to up through Maine in the north. Anyway, the book details his his you know his hike on the trail, and you, I think if you read that book, you would either go, "There's no way in a million years I would ever even consider doing something like that," or you go, "That sounds amazing! Sign me up!" <laughs> so I had read that book, and it really lit a fire under me, and I told myself. If I don't have something better to do next March, which is around the time people attempt a through hike, uh, and I was perfectly willing to have something better to do, but if I didn't, I was like, I'm on the trail. That's my, you know, things kind of fell apart for me personally, and and I experienced some disappointments both professionally and personally. I remembered, like in the back of my mind, it was like, ding, guess what? You can go right now. You can actually do this. You can throw all your stuff in storage, and you can go and hike the Appalachian Trail. And I literally, on three weeks' notice, I did. I, I threw all my stuff in storage, got bought a one-way ticket to Atlanta, and flew out there with a fully loaded backpack and started hiking. And, and as far as my expectation, I didn't know because I still was a very much a beginner backpacker. I was a novice and a rookie in many ways. I was still learning how to do stuff. The most I had spent out in the outdoors at once was maybe five days, six days, something like that. So I had no idea realistically how long I would last, but it was this great adventure. And I thought, let me find out. I don't know. A lot of people that attempt this and they plan it out for a long period of time, they show up and 30 miles in, they're done. That happens. (laughs) I didn't know if I would be one of those people. I didn't know. So it was, I gave myself like the open-ended sort of um, approached it with an open-ended mentality like, yeah, maybe I will do the whole thing. Who knows? I have no way, no idea. Like, I'll, I'll let that be a possibility. But it was, I wasn't attached to that outcome. It was more like, I want the experience of this. I want to see what it's like to push myself and see what I can even do. Um, and I love hiking. I love being outside. And I, I had this growing interest in being, you know, in in the camping aspect of it and the backpacking aspect. And there was also a social component to it as well, because there's a lot of people that do this from all, all different ages, all different walks of life, no pun intended, show up and it and you know, it's like a nomadic community hiking this trail. And it's like a and for some people, it's like a pilgrimage, you know, and it has a spiritual component to it. Um, there's a, definitely a lot of physical and and um uh, you know challenges and mental challenges and so I did it with sort of an open end as an open ended exploration. I ended up hiking roughly a quarter of the whole thing, about 540 miles or so before I decided I was done. And it was an incredible, one of my most treasured life experiences. And uh, it was really, I could talk with you for hours just about that. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. So you run about 540 miles. How, how fast did that long take? How long did that? Yeah, yeah that was about. That was about eight weeks, I think. Wow. I was not per- particularly fast. So what I did, by the way, was I hiked for five weeks and you would stop into a town roughly once a week to re- replenish. You would need to get supplies and food and stuff and gas for the stove. So about once a week, I would like stay in a motel. And, and after having been, you know, hiking day and, you know, and, and, being immersed in the wilderness, hiking all day and then sleeping at night, hopefully, uh, after about a week of that, experiencing a shower, heaven, best thing ever. People do this every day, (laughs) but it was, that was the irony. It was the deprivation that made it so 
made made you appreciate it so much. I, I'll never forget. I had this. I stopped in. I think it was the town of Franklin, North Carolina. You said you're from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and along the way, to hiking the trail at one point, we stopped in Franklin, North Carolina. Well, I say we, whoever I was hiking with. And we went to a pizza hut and I had an entire pizza just right myself. You know, I was so hungry. And I talked about that pizza for weeks afterwards. It was like the my body was just so thrilled with that pizza. I, I enjoyed that pizza like it was the greatest meal ever prepared, that Pizza Hut. Um, because, you know, it was it was the deprivation from having <laughs> food like that for anyway, um, these are the kinds of experiences you have on the uh on the Appalachian Trail or the AT. And there's a lot of priceless memories and really fun stories I have from that uh, experience. But I was out for about five weeks and then I ended up getting uh, sidetracked and was off the trail for about 10 days, visiting friends in other places, and then got back on the trail and did another three weeks or so. So it was a total of, of eight weeks that was I was spent that I spent actually hiking, backpacking. And I covered about a quarter of the trail, which is not a particularly fast pace as, as these things go. But one of the things I learned from another hiker out there was he said, hey, man, he, oh, actually two things. One guy I'll never forget, he said to me, hey, man, it's not about the miles. It's about the smiles, <laughs> which I loved. And also another sort of mantra that you heard out there was hike your own hike. Like people have their own ways of doing it. And some people it's just about getting as many miles as they possibly can in and racing through the whole thing, which to me is like, what, that's not the point of, that's not my reason for being out there. I want to actually have an experience and enjoy it. So people bring all kinds of different mentalities and approaches to the way they go about hiking a trail like that. And for me, I just really wanted the experience and the adventure and to see how much I could do and to enjoy it. I wasn't out there to suffer. That was not the point for me. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you said a, you said a lot there. I wanted to we could go into your Iron Man experience and stuff, but we'll have to go into that another time. I would love to have love to talk more about that. So, we'll have to do it another time. I liked a lot what you said another time that uh on another show you were on that it's about for you, it's about exploration over expectation. I know we talked more about that, but could you like kind of dive more into that maybe from that youth perspective for somebody that is younger and maybe is debating between different things and, you know, thinks maybe they need a way before getting started on some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's a, it's a more, it's more recently that I came up with that phrase, that three word phrase, explorations over expectations. And it was, it was three words that for me crystallized uh, what I've kind of learned about how to live in a way that is satisfying. And when I was younger, I'm glad you framed it this way, because when I was younger, I really had very high and strong expectations, especially of myself. I really demanded a lot of myself and from myself. And I put a lot on my upon myself. And I've learned over the years that some of that is good. Like there's some good, it's good to be ambitious and it's good to be hungry for life. And it's good to want to challenge yourself. And it's want, it's very good to want to try to realize your most um, self-actualize, right? To realize your most positive and creative capabilities and potential. All that's great. But when you get attached to the results of things, when you when you um, when you enter something with a huge attachment to what's going to come out of it, or what you're going to get out of it, or what the result is going to be, it taints it. 
I think I've, I've discovered because if you don't, if the result doesn't match up with your hopes and expectations, then you can write it off as a failure or yourself as a failure when you don't have to frame it that way and you don't have to view it that way. And believe me, I learned this lesson the hard way. And so what I've learned over the years is that the healthy way to go about things is to recognize that you don't, you can put like, by all means, put forth your best efforts and go after the things you want and that that interest you and that call to you and that you're passionate about or excited about, or even just curious about, like go after it and, and do it wholeheartedly, but manage your expectations as the, to the best of your ability. We're human and it's, it's not easy to do this necessarily, but I've gotten better at it. I think over the years, I'd like to think, and I've benefited from that. And I've learned that if I can do something for its own sake and to have the, the, the experience of it and to explore it and to go into it with that sense of curiosity. And I don't know how it's going to turn out, but let me see, let me find out, let me have an experience and learn from it and grow from it. And if it ends up being a one and done kind of experience where I try something and it's like, eh, maybe not for me or not for me right now, or wasn't that great. Fine. Nothing ventured, nothing gained and nothing, certainly no, no harm, no foul, nothing lost, like onto the next thing. And you never know when you adopt that attitude, you never know what things are going to really stick. I mean, for instance, when I took that, that invitation, a friend of mine who invited me to go backpacking, I had never done it before. And I took him up on it. And I said yes to that. That ended up being a life-changing experience. That ended up rippling profoundly through the through the years since. Not every uh, you know yes that you say or invitation you accept will necessarily be that profound. You don't know which ones might be or, or might not be. So all you can do is explore, try to manage the expectations and have that sense of that spirit of adventure and curiosity and exploration and do your best to manage the expectations about what's going to come of it. Easier said than done. Easier said than done, but worth doing. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. If it's worth trying, it's worth, you know, trying all the way kind of thing. Yeah. I guess a little comment on that. It just kind of makes me think of different experiments I've tried and different experiments that were more or less like, you know, it just kind of more tuckered me out than anything. So it didn't really help a ton. You know, it helps to have a pretty good way to be like sustainable with it. And also if you can answer the question, am I doing this just so I can just to like feel like I can love myself more or something like that. I personally don't think it's really a good thing to, to go for. Like, you know, I, there's this training thingy that happened around Thanksgiving last year. I know we're going longer, but you know, it just like, it was kind of crazy because they're like, hey, we're going to, we've split up this Iron Man. And now I guess we're sort of talking about an Iron Man, but like oh, we split up an Iron Man into 30 days. And so you can do an Iron Man in 30 days. And so they had this chart to help you keep track. And so right before Thanksgiving break, I found out about this and I'm like, I'm going to do it in a week. You know, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. I can do it in a week. And, you know, so I, signed up to do it in a week. And then the first day I did a couple miles on the bike, couple miles running. And then the next day, you know, I still had class. I ended up taking a nap and passing out and was so frustrated. It's like, <laughs> how am I going to catch up? I ended up like 
losing that whole Thanksgiving break, didn't finish the Iron Man. It was a big oof because I was like, I had these different expectations. And the problem was I only had so much time. I was like, oh, I'm going to get all this homework done. I'm also going to get so far on my podcast. And I'm going to do this like this health fitness thing. And the reason I was doing the health fitness thing is like, maybe if I do this really ambitious big thing, I will feel better about myself. That was like the whole entire inspiration for it was like, I've done big things like this before. Maybe I'll feel more like myself and I'll love myself more if I get this done. And for me, that just was not like a good way to do it. Cause in that way it was like, I'm trying to make up for lost ground or something like that. It also puts a lot of extra pressure on yourself, right? It's like the stakes are, the stakes are way higher. Like I need to do this in order to feel worthwhile. Like no pressure there. <laughs> it's a different thing, right? If Yeah. Yeah. But you know what, Dallin, good for you. You had an experience and you've already learned things from it. And so you take those lessons with you into the next venture, right? The easiest thing to do is go to my website, which is my name, Eric with a C, Teplitz, ericteplitzaltogether.com. And, and you can get the spelling from um, Dallin's podcast of my name, ericteplitz.com. If you go to that website, you will find, you know, if I may say, quite a treasure trove of free stuff. Uh, there's some stuff you, there is a course that I'm very proud of. You can do a free preview of that course is called Opening to Greater Possibilities. So yeah, that's my interview with Eric. We end with him talking about his websites and stuff. He does have a very just very good voice on these kind of topics. I think perusing over his content and just kind of like grazing over it is 100% worth your time. Just has some good perspectives and it's humbling to, you know, edit this episode because he's definitely like 20 or 30 years ahead of me and has made some experiments and done some things that I would like to do. So it's worth thinking about this interview. If there's any interview that it's worth editing twice, I basically edited a good portion of this twice because I had to re-edit it and such. This would be a really good one to do it, honestly. So I'm excited to have him back on when I have much better equipment. You know what? Maybe I could even have him come to my studio. I don't know. The future is unlimited now that we've gone and passed this. This is out of my mind. It is. We're looking ahead. So take some of your notes that you took from this episode and uh, put them to work. What we learned about experiments you know, about knowing your expectations and taking care of yourself and making it sustainable. All that, put that to work. And yeah, just stay tuned for the podcast. I'm definitely learning a bunch of stuff. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to heal today and it'll be better tomorrow.